Amen again, and thank you to Mary for leading us uh, in a time of prayer, in a time when the church needs prayer. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? We've got a couple verses left there before we jump into chapter 3, um, also this morning, but uh, just a couple things up front. Um, you know, I asked the end, I ended the service last week asking uh, that we're kind of in this in-between period of do we go to one service or we stay at one service or we go to two services based upon the amount of people that are returning and our number of restrictions we have here. So I asked you guys if you could register early last week. And thank you. Um, everybody here registered on Monday, and it closed on Monday. Um, and so we, quote-unquote, sold out early. We heard that loud and clear. So next week, November 8th, we are going to transition to two services, uh, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. So tomorrow morning, for those here and watching on the live stream, uh, Mary will send out that email like she's been doing each Monday, but note that now you'll choose which service you will um, attend. And again, really appreciate, I know it's a weekly kind of monotonous thing of registering again and again, but would appreciate early registration just so we can get an idea of... Um, of who's coming and when, um, as well as families that are starting to come. And we have a couple new families who are coming again back for the first time. We're starting to see more and more return. Uh, for those who are live streaming, I want to encourage you guys to come back, that you are, uh, we, we'll have the kids' video, we have kids' bulletins and things for them in the pews. And if they get a little restless and a little rattled, uh, we have six rooms available in our church, two upstairs, four downstairs, that have the service streaming on a TV, and then the kids can play in that room so it'll be one family per room. So we're happy to be able to utilize that and encourage families to uh, start to return. But also, last week, um, you know, I shared some comments early on about how to, as Christians, we want to view, and as a church, we want to view this election process and even the idea of voting and, you know, just a reminder of what I said last week, that uh, it's okay for Christians to care and to care deeply about this election. But as Mary prayed, we're not to fear this election. And the reminder again that you will have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ who votes the opposite way you do than you have with a non-believer who will vote the same way. Right? And the reason in line with our series in 1 John is because this country and this government and this world is temporary. It is passing away. But the kingdom of God and the body of Christ is eternal. It's forever. So this week, as we stand on the brink of Election Day, I want to kind of ask a a different question for us. Church, have you prayed and thought about how you will respond once this thing is over? Many people say that the mark of a Christian is revealed by how they're going to vote in this election. I think the mark of a Christian is going to be far more revealed in how we react to the results of this election. So just a couple questions I want you to think about, because everyone's, everything's been November 3rd, November 3rd, November 3rd. But I want to think a little bit about November 4th, and I realize we may or may not know who wins on November 4th, but you get the point. I want to know this. Um, if the candidate you want to win wins, will you be gracious? Will you understand that many of even your fellow believers, maybe many even people in this church will be hurting? Will you understand that? Will you love them well, or will you be boastful? And on the flip side, if the candidate you want to win loses, will you resist lashing out and sinning in your disappointment and anger? 
And this goes for both sides. I, I really, I want to know my own heart. I want to know in the heart of our church, have we put thought and prayer into how we, we will react on the other side of this election? Not only what you're going to post or not post on social media if you're on social media, but how are you going to relate in your family, how are you going to relate in your friend groups, in your neighborhood, at the place that you work, how are you going to relate to fellow church members. These relationships matter far more than a single election does. And at Grace Church, our mission here is to make disciples who know Jesus and make him known. And church, that is true today, and that will be true whenever this election gets determined, whether that's Tuesday night or Wednesday or next weekend or further. Um, And I have no idea what will happen, but unless the Lord returns first, do you know what I do know? Here's what I know. Next Sunday, November 8th, we're going to gather in this room twice. We're going to prepare our minds and our hearts with a call to worship from God's word. We're going to sing songs of praise to God for who he is and what he has done. We're going to confess sin. We're going to be grateful for God atoning for that sin. We're going to pray for our country, and we are going to preach the next passage in 1 John. And then we'll finish by taking the Lord's Supper together, unified as a church family in Jesus Christ. That's what I know. And so I'm going to sum it up like this. When Wednesday comes, don't forget about the next Sunday. Don't lose sight of the eternal in the midst of the temporary. And church, this is, could be a great challenge for people, but anytime a Christian is given a great challenge, it's also a great opportunity to be the church. Let's not waste it as a church. All right, back into 1 John. As we continue this series, we're going to be, again, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 28 in a moment. But a a segue question here will be, um, what motivates you? John's going to give us a new motivation today that he has not given up to this point in his letter. So my question up front is, what motivates you? I think among the most overlooked things that impacts our day-to-day life is motivation. Motivation is simply the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. And and so I wonder for you, do you really know this in your own mind and heart? What are the two or three things that you know get you going? You know that keep you from slowing down. You know that when these things are present, you're all in. Let's go. And when they're missing, you struggle to find motivation. Do you know what those are in your life? In the documentary, The Last Dance, that featured Michael Jordan's last season with the Bulls that er, um, aired earlier this quarantine season, it was like an oasis in a desert for us sports fans, right? It was like a little carrot for us who had no sports. You got this documentary. I like used it in sermon illustrations like three weeks in a row, and people were like, chill, okay, chill. We know Jordan had documentary, but it's been some time now, so here's another one. <laughs> Jordan was, um, one of the things that stood out to me, because I was a little young kind of during like his real prime, but so kind of watching back and giving him this, um, this insight, how um, what stood out to me was how Jordan was always looking for an edge with motivation. He was, and the way, one of the things he would do is he would look to be slighted by other people to get the motivation to beat them, right? Because he was top of the world, he's the best player in the world, and he feared that he would get complacent with all the success he experienced. So he, would, he admitted in the doc, he would even make up slights that people did not intend and took them as slights so he could use it as motivation, okay? No matter what you did do or you didn't do, he got offended, right? So if someone looked at him the wrong way, he would take it personally. 
like you were, he was trying to challenge him. Or if someone did not look at him, he would take it personally because now he's ignoring him and doesn't take him seriously. So whatever you did or what you didn't do, he found motivation. And, and it was effective for him, although a little bit misguided. The hid motivation was to win at all costs, to never let somebody get the best of him or disrespect his name. So, so here's my contention. Um, while there are many layers of motivation for all of us, we are far more complex creatures than we often admit. And there are many methods to generate that motivation. At the end of the day, there is one foundational goal that we all as Christians should want motivation for. What's the one goal of every believer and every church? To get the glory to God. Honor, high renown, to make much of Him. Right? We all in this world want to make much of something. We all want and crave glory. The question for every person is, is our highest goal in life the glory of God or the glory of self? Even 1 Corinthians 10.31, when Paul says, whether you eat mundane things, whether you drink mundane things, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And there's different ways to be motivated for the singular goal of glorifying God. And the Bible all across from cover to cover will give you all different kinds of motivations to do that. So Christian, what motivates you to glorify God? What are the reasons you will shape your life around that one pursuit? This morning, John's going to give us a couple new motivations. So let's dig in. First John chapter 2, we're going to start just by reading verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is what you might call a hinge passage in the middle of 1 John, right? At, at this point, John will now begin to circle back on many of the same topics he's already written about. He's going to start giving a lot of the same exhortations that we've already seen, but he's going to provide a different motivation for us to follow them a different angle, a way to approach it. You can really see this by that hinge verse in verses 27 and 28. We ended last week in 27, started this morning in 28, but let me read them together. John said, As his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And then, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. Picture it this way. If this letter were a mountain, Hang with me here, right? At the beginning, you start the hike up to the peak, and you get on this trail. And along the way, John is talking about and pointing out the importance of the obedience to God and, and love for others and the importance of right belief. And then you get to the peak of this mountain, which was the end of verse 27, abide in him. And then verse 28, he turns and starts the descent down the mountain we just climbed, saying again, abide in him. And he's going to follow this trail back down. He's going to talk more about obedience. He's going to talk more about love for others. He's going to talk more about the importance of right belief. But now, it's the way down the mountain. And just like a hike that's down the mountain on the same trail, it's a different perspective of everything you've already seen. We saw it on the way going up, and now we're going to see it on the way going down. 
a different perspective to hear these same commands. But abiding in Christ is the peak of 1 John. It's the heartbeat desire that John has for his church in these hard times they find themselves in. And this morning, he's going to provide these four new motivations in our passage. It's this present-day command, abide in him, with two motivations from the future and then two motivations from the past. So number one, first motivation is the certainty of his second coming. The certainty of his second coming. Church, ab- church, abide in Christ so that when he appears, not if, not if, but when, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The, the second coming of Christ is among the clearest truths in the New Testament that Jesus is sure to return. And it is undoubtedly the hope of God's people throughout the New Testament that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to destroy evil. He's coming back to instate his kingdom. He's coming back to dwell as king over his people in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity as he destroys evil. That is clear. What isn't clear, and we touched on this last week, is when that will happen. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But we do know it is happening. And this is the reality that we still live in as the church. 2,000 years later, we're still in this last hour. And keeping that future certainty at the forefront of our minds is a vital motivation for us to abide in the present. John says, when that day comes, we'll either all be confident or terrified. It will either be a day of joy for us or a day of shame based on whether or not we are saved. The word John uses here for appears indicates a sudden arrival. It won't be a secret. It will be sudden. In his first coming, Jesus came in the form of a baby. That was both sudden and secret. Nobody knew the king of the universe just took on flesh on that silent night in Bethlehem. It was sudden and it was secret. But while his second coming will be sudden, it will not be a secret. And he's not coming as a baby. Revelation 1.7 says that every eye will see him when he comes. And every person will be either confident or ashamed based upon whether or not they are abiding in him on that day. It's another motivation to abide in Christ. Jesus is coming back. And your future confidence will be rooted in your present abiding. Last week, we ended by talking about that word abide. John's going to use it ten times in this short letter. Again, it's the peak of the letter. And to abide, we said, is to stand at the crossroads or the cross street of of right belief and right living. To abide is to accept the truth of God and, and then to submit to it and then walk in it. Okay, so to abide is to accept the truth of God, submit to it, and then walk in it. To abide is to say, as Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And among other things, abiding in Christ renders you prepared for a sudden arrival of the king. Somebody's coming. So think about it this way. Um, 
Does your house look any different when you are expecting guests than it looks when you're not? Anyone else? Aren't things a little bit cleaner, a little bit more put together, a little less cluttered when you know people are about to show up? So Rochelle and I would host our grace group in our home on Tuesday nights in, this, in, the, in that pre-COVID world. Do you remember that? We used to like have people in our homes and stuff. Like, you remember? It was wild. Good times. Okay, so maybe someday again. But we would always put the kids to bed before people came over. Especially our oldest son, Caden. Because if you know Caden, he would hate to know he was missing out on people coming over. Right? If he knew people were coming, he wouldn't fall asleep. He would keep asking if they're here yet, who's here, what are you guys doing, so we wouldn't tell him. But that meant we couldn't start to clean the house until he went to bed, because he'd get suspicious. So we put him to bed, and then we start running around like crazy people trying to clean before people come over. And if you've been in our small group, I know there's some people in here who have been or are in our group, um, if you know, if you came early, you're helping. All right, so you show up before 7.30, like, you are putting some books away, you're helping in the kitchen, like, we're putting you to work if you come early to, to group, because we are always just barely getting it done in time before people come. Well, Caden would wake up the next morning, and within, like, a minute, he'd walk through the house, and he'd be like, who came over last night? Like, ticked off, like, like well, why does it look so clean in here? And I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? And he was, like, almost always right. Because our house looks different when we're expecting guests than when we're not. We have greater motivation to clean things up than we would have if no one was coming. This is the picture John is painting. The ones who will be confident when Christ returns and not ashamed are those who are putting the house in order, who are aware that he's coming and whose lives reflect it. And it reveals who, those who were born of God. And, and John says they will be known by their righteousness. Do you notice that? He connects that. Our, our, our righteousness, which is never perfect, but it's growing, that's going to be a sign of whether or not we realize Christ is coming back and how confident we will be. So in this way, thinking in the future absolutely impacts the present. Every single day, our lives are shaped or motivated by a certain truth that Jesus will return. So a simple question, application, are you ready? Is the house in order? Are our days defined by this motivation to glorify him in all that we do and, and resisting the decisions, resisting the behavior that we would be ashamed of if Christ returned at that moment? You know, this illustration can get overplayed, but it can be a good litmus test of, of, of whether or not you know in your conscience whether a certain behavior is right or wrong for you. Is to ask yourself this. If Jesus returned at the moment you were doing that, would you be confident or ashamed? Might not be a perfect litmus test, but it, it could be a way of your conscience telling you, is this right? Or is this wrong? Would you be confident or would you be ashamed if you were doing that when Christ returned? And then react accordingly. 
Abide in him because of the certainty of his second coming. Um, let's keep going. Now we're into chapter 3. Let's read the first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Number two, your second motivation is the hope of his second coming. The, the hope of his second coming. John here bursts into a state of wonder and worship. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And, and he's kind of doing a, a play on words, right? He says, we will see Jesus return with our eyes one day. But until then, we will see in our mind what kind of love God has. That we would be called his, his children. Right? And that word see in the Greek means ponder. It means study. It means to dig deep into pondering the love of God. And doesn't it say something that John is having this moment? He's an elderly man. He's been walking with Christ for over 50 years at least. And even now in this moment, as he's writing, he can't hold it in. It causes him to worship How often do you allow yourself to dwell upon the love of God and the love he has for you? You're not caring for your soul if you're not dwelling on the love of God and his love for you. You know that phrase, self-care? It's become like a household phrase in our world today, right? Like, like it's a cottage industry almost, like self-care. You know what the best form of self-care is? Thinking deeply about God's love for you. Seriously, brother, sister in Christ, maybe even the ones who've been in Christ for a long time, maybe you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, can I ask you, do you know how much God loves you? Do you know that he's not merely putting up with you? But he loves you. Like, like his own child kind of love. This was Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3, that they may be strengthened by the Spirit in their inner being, being rooted and grounded in love, to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. John's been doing this for 50 years, and he's still stunned by it. It's still not normal to him. He still can't believe it. Measuring God's love is like trying to measure the ocean with a tablespoon. You'll never get to the bottom of it. And the reason God pours out his love for us is not because of anything we've done or anything that we've done to deserve it, but that we are adopted into his family. By the new birth. Just like we had no control over our first birth, we had no control over our spiritual birth. It's by the grace of the triune God that the Father sends and the Son saves and the Spirit seals. And we're adopted into God's family. This is the biblical language that He uses, it's the beauty of adoption. 
When a family says to a child, you are in our family now. Our name is on you. You're ours now. There's no asterisks here. That's what John's proclaiming, that in Christ, God's saying, my name's on you now. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this little famous book called The Screwtape Letters. Anyone read The Screwtape Letters? Decent amount. I think it's in the library. It's a unique book, obviously a fictional book, of letters written by a senior demon named Screwtape, who is training a younger demon named Wormwood in the art of guiding a human being into hell. And at one point, he warns his young understudy that this task is going to be made all the more difficult because, quote, the enemy, who is God, has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. It's going to make the task all the more difficult. Because God takes us and he sees us in all of our messiness and says, you're mine now. I put my name on you. And this hope is once again rooted in the future hope of Jesus' second coming because he says what we will be has not occurred in, his, in its fullness. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him for who he is, that, that in glory we'll, we will be Christ-like. It doesn't mean we'll share in his deity or his divinity, but that we will share in his characteristics, right? We won't become Christ in glory, but we will become perfectly Christ-like, sinless, new heavenly body, in perfect unity with him for all of eternity. Church, this is our hope of the future, and it's our motivation in the present that, that because that will be true in the future, we are free to pursue that now. That's the point of verse 3. That's the application John gives. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are called to pursue Christ-likeness, to grow into the image of his Son, because that's who we are. And that is who we will be. And our pursuit, man, it's imperfect. A lot of two steps forward, one steps back. Which we'll talk more about in a moment. But, but it is sure. It's imperfect, but it is sure. Our trajectory is sure. We are headed towards Christ-likeness. John Newton, the ex-slave trader turned pastor in England, He's the one who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. He once says this, I quote it at least here once every three months, and I just want you to memorize it with me. I think it'll be on the screen. Tell me if it resonates with you. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Church, abide in Christ because of the hope of his second coming. Let's go. Number three, verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Number three, third motivation is the purpose of his first coming. 
right? First two were about the future. Now the second two are about the past. So number three, the purpose of his first coming. And here's where we're going to start to see some well-traveled ground that we've already seen in 1 John. The relationship between sin and the Christian life, all right? So you're on that mountain with me. We're heading back down the trail. We're seeing the same trail, but now we're coming at it from a different angle, a new motivation. If you recall earlier in this series, we said um, that there's really two wrong ways to address sin and the topic of sin. One is to not teach about it at all. And the second is to teach about sin without the grace of Jesus Christ. And John avoids both in his letter, and now he does it multiple times. And you know the reason why he does it multiple times? Church, we need to hear it multiple times. And the new motivation to resist the practice of sin is the purpose of his first coming. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Church, this is why Jesus came. It's not the only thing he did when he came to earth, but it's the main reason he came. So did Jesus, while he was here, teach a code of morality of loving God and and loving others? Yes. Did Jesus stand for and identify the oppressed and push back against the oppressors of his day? Yes. Did Jesus carry out compassionate ministry of healing and addressing physical felt needs all around him? Yes, yes to it all. But he appeared as a man, born in a manger to a virgin mother and an adoptive father, most of all, to live the perfect life that we could not, so that he could take away our sin by dying the death on the cross that we deserved. And this time, again, new angle, we're seeing this topic. John now defines sin. You see how he defined it? One word, lawlessness. Lawlessness, it's it's, it's defiance against the rule and reign of God. It's the creation rebelling against the creator with the very bodies and minds we've been created with to choose self-glory over God's glory. That's what sin is. It's no regard for God's law. It's no regard for his rule and reign, for his design. It's, it's, it's affirming and reveling in what God calls evil. It's, it's darkness. It's lawlessness. So we can follow the logic of John's argument here. Number one, sin is lawlessness. Number two, Jesus came out of his deep love and compassion in order to take away sin. Number three, therefore, anyone who keeps on sinning discards and shows that they don't really know him. Some critics of Scripture would say that John just contradicted himself. Maybe in his old age he forgot what he wrote in chapter 1 because he's contradicting himself now in chapter 3. Because in chapter 1 he said, if anyone claims to be without sin, they make God to be a liar. But now in chapter 3 he says, if anyone keeps on sinning, he does not know him. So which is it, John? Choose. But a careful reading shows that John does not contradict his own words. Because John uses the the ongoing language in chapter 3 of keeps on sinning. The phrase in chapter 1 was, if we claim to be without sin. So clearly, John is talking about an ongoing sinful lifestyle instead of isolated acts of sin. All Christians 
struggle with sin. But Christians do not continue in a habitual, increasingly sinful lifestyle that they are completely indifferent to. Another way to say it is that sin for Christians should increasingly be the exception and not the rule. That's not possible for Christ to die for the sin, for a spirit to indwell somebody, and to somebody to increase and habitually increase in sinning and then just be completely indifferent towards it. Sin, when rightly confronted, drives us towards God and not away from him. Because we know when we sin, like he said in chapter 1, that we have a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive. forgive. So church, we abide in Christ because of the purpose of Jesus' first coming. All right, let's finish up. Last reason will be in verses 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Number four, the victory of his first coming. The victory of his force coming. So you can see in those verses, John's paralleling verse 7 through 9 with 4 through 6. They both connotate the big idea that Christians do not make a practice of sin. They both provide a motivation reason, motivating reason. With verses 4 through 6, spotlighting the purpose of Christ's first coming. And now verses 7 through 9, spotlighting the victory of his first coming. The reason the Son of God appeared was to victoriously destroy the works of the devil. If sin is lawlessness by definition, then sin is of the devil by source. God is not the source of sin, for there's no darkness in him at all. But he did create a world with the possibility of sin. And the devil is the source of that sin. And Satan, ever since his own fall from heaven as a fallen angel who was jealous of God, now commits his entire being to sin and then to lead others to do the same. So if the church's vision is to make disciples who know Jesus and make him known, the enemy wants to make disciples who sin against Jesus and destroy his name. And again, John is very careful, the logic of his argument, that sin is sourced in the devil. And that Jesus came and declared victory over the devil by his death on the cross and being raised again to new life. Therefore, those who have Christ in them cannot keep on sinning. Again, I, I keep thinking about the word indifference. We all struggle with sin. I know there's this like panic moment, like, oh my gosh, am I saved? You know, what's even going on? I'm still struggling with sin. I got things in my flesh people don't even know about. What do I do with that? But it gets scary when somebody's indifferent towards it. They don't care about it. To be indifferent towards sin would be like being indifferent towards a large snake being loose in your house. Like once you know you can't just go on living like normal. Like if a neighbor said to you, like, hey, we were trick-or-treating around the neighborhood, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but there was a large python in your window. 
You know what you wouldn't do? Yeah. I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. I'll figure that out tomorrow. You wouldn't be indifferent. In, in, in the same way, Christians who become um, increasingly aware of sin in their life increasingly want to confront that. And the longer they're believers, the more they want to confront that, which is why a paradox tends to happen. It tends to be that the more you mature in the faith, the more crummy you feel over your own sin than when you were a new believer. And it can be a little disorienting. Like, wait, I'm supposed to be more mature in the faith, and yet I feel worse about my sin than I did when I came to faith. But that's because you know more. You're aware of more. More of Christ has gotten hold of you, which means more sin gets exposed. Just like the more sunlight shining into a room exposes the dust that's actually there. The sunlight didn't put it there, but the more light that shines in, the more it gets exposed. That's what it is with the Christian life. Sometimes the more we grow in Christ, the more light comes in and the more sin we see. But we have the desire to root it out, to battle against that. And for those who have not yet trusted your life to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, the message of this passage and really this letter is this world's pleasures, they're not all what they're cracked up to be. And the warning is to see their emptiness in this world's pleasures while you still can before it's too late. That we are to submit to Christ, to the one who has already declared victory over the devil. That's not our job to declare victory over him in ourselves. He has come and done that in our place. And while the devil still in the lives of believers wreaks havoc and still does battle, that, that devil is on a leash and his days are numbered. And so this life can be hard now. I know for many, even believing, mature, faithful believers in our church, life is just hard right now, even as we belong to Christ. But consider how much harder it would be without Him. Consider how much harder eternity would be without God. Eternity without God makes the reality of this world's sufferings looking like blessings. We sang it this morning. Run to the Father, who out of his great love for you will adopt you into his family because of the work of his Son bestowed to you in faith. And for those who do believe, abide in him. When we know who we are and we know whose we are, it is our joy to abide in him because we know he's coming back and we know why he came. And with these things in mind, we are fearless in this world. Do you believe that, Christian? You can be fearless in this world because no matter what happens, we are secured as eternal citizens in another world. So I want to finish with an excerpt from a sermon given by German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer who said this on November 26, 1939, as the storm clouds of World War II were approaching. He said, When dark hours and when the darkest hour comes over us, then we want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling into our ear, Victory is won. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Take comfort. And may God grant that, when, that then we will be able to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it so often clears the fog for us. We thank you for providing us all different kinds of motivations to the singular goal, to glorify your name, to abide in you. Father, let us hear this afresh this morning. Even those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, allow your love to wash over us, to fix our eyes upon you, to sharpen our focus. And even now, Father, as we sing and we prepare to conclude by taking communion together, I pray that we would um, sing these words not only with our mouths but in our hearts and that it would provide us the confidence and assurance we need heading into this week of all weeks. And it's your name we pray. Amen.